Hello, everyone, and welcome to Martaloop Church. I hope the dog days of summer this August are going well for you, and that you've been able to, uh, as I have been able to, shake off some of the weight of this uh, long-suffering pandemic experience, and that you've been able to find some rest, some deep, deep rest and recovering rest, and recentering rest, refinding yourself rest, uh, a rejuvenating, life-giving kind of rest. Now, while I was away on holidays uh, through most of the month of July, I spent the entire month meditating on one psalm, Psalm 23. Um, beautiful words that were surely written um, out of a place of deeply centered rest. And familiar words, I'm sure, to many of you, um, if you grew up in the faith or you've attended a Christian funeral, um, these words. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just reading those words right now uh, reconnects me in all kinds of ways, to all kinds of different places in my life, to a childhood time when I first tried to memorize uh, that psalm. I couldn't memorize anything as a kid, but tried. Um, that early, uh, long-ago connection to me, and then to the many times I've read it since over the years and, and found God's comfort there, and then to the many funerals that I've led over the years where I've read those words. It always seems to be a just right psalm for that solemn occasion, it seems. And then most importantly, um, I feel a sense of connection when I read those words, a sense of connection to God, God's self, God himself, directly in and through the reading of the psalm. When, when I read those words um, awake and alive to what I'm reading, I, I feel like I'm reading them before God as a kind of declaration of faith, um, an affirmation of what I believe, um, in, in, in a prayerful way um, spoken directly to God. Um, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It's like I'm talking to you, to, to God, in that moment. And I love that moment when that you shows up in this psalm. And it's like I'm right there with God. Uh, when the time is right and the Spirit is moving, uh, Lord, um, in speaking those words. And so today, we're going to unpack this uh, famous psalm a little bit, and I'm going to share just a few of the many insights um, I learned um, while living into it 
over last month's holiday. But before we get into that, again, please join me in a prayer. God, as um, we now engage what might be a very familiar, maybe not to everybody, uh, psalm, um, one that is uh, yeah, very familiar to those of the faith who sought after your face in times of trouble and difficulty, psalm, um, we pray that you would shepherd us by your Spirit into places of understanding that result in seeing your face, hearing your voice, knowing your touch, and knowing the, the, the truth of this psalm, not just for its eloquence and beauty and memory, but for its uh, vivacity and life-giving power and potential right now with each of us and all of us, wherever we're at. So meet us in that way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord is my shepherd. It's probably one of the most well-known and well-loved images for God in the Bible and throughout the history of Christendom. And um, I discovered last month, um, which you might not know, that the metaphor of a shepherd actually probably came from another Middle Eastern religion of that day. I discovered that in the study Bible commentary I was looking at, which, where I read these words. When describing the authority and care exercised by a deity or a king who represents the gods, the metaphor of a shepherd was natural in the ancient Near East. Marduk was the chief god in Babylonia for much of its history. And a standard hymn of praise concludes by extolling his care for the weak like a benevolent shepherd. A hymn to Shamash, the Mesopotamian sun god, states, quote, You shepherd all living creatures together. You are their herdsmen above and below. And I love this. I love that God is big enough to use images from other religious histories to describe himself. If it's a good image and all good spiritual metaphors for God are God's good spiritual metaphors for God, and if God is the God of all people, regardless of their religious practices, um, and if the world truly is the Lord's and, and everything in it, including those religions and that metaphor that was meaningful for those religions, then great. Uh, what a big God that God would use uh, the best image for God's self in the context of Psalm 23. And so the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And I think this has been the biggest lesson uh, that I learned from this psalm this summer, um, that when God tends to my life, to me, I lack nothing, because God is the one who is shepherding me. He knows the lay of the land. He knows where to go. He knows how to meet my needs. Um, he wants to meet my needs. God wants to keep you and I safe and sound and growing and flourishing in our lives. And if God is the one who is doing this shepherding work, then you have nothing to worry about. You can honestly lack nothing. 
But if you're the one who's doing everything to keep your life on track, well, then I guess you should be worrying and stressing and feeling anxiety about the shortfalls that you're facing, your inabilities, your lack of strength, how out of control everything is, uh, maybe your sinful proclivities that always get you into trouble, or your other human frailties. If you're the one who's responsible for everything in your life, and, and you're aware of your weaknesses and keenly um, know your vulnerabilities, then I suppose you should rightly be worried because your life is giving, actually, I guess, giving ver- voice to another version of Psalm 23, the, the one that starts, the Lord is not my shepherd, and I know that I'm in deep, deep trouble. So that was the first thing that hit me last month as I was fretting, before you think I'm judging you too much, I was fretting way too much about this new church thing again, and are we crazy, and is this going to work, and are you crazy, Lord, and is this going to work, and I don't have what it, what it takes. I know, I realize that, contemplating this phrase, but I know that you do, Lord, and that was my prayer. I know that you are more than enough. And I know that knowing you, I will have all that I need on a just-in-time basis for all that lies ahead. And And to the extent that I know all of this about you, Lord, my shepherd, and keep my eyes fixed on you and realize that this is your church... And that all I and we need to do is is follow, and to the extent that we can live in that place will be good. To the extent that I know that all I need to do, it's simple, is let you shepherd and me follow, us follow, I, we, we will lack nothing. Nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. This past Monday, Fran and Eddie and I went on yet another road trip, a southern Alberta side roads road trip, just discovering new things we'd never seen before. And we decided to drive to a little provincial park near Lake McGregor to get away just for a couple of hours. And as we're driving there, just on a turn left, turn right, until we get there kind of drive, we're driving past a little place called Carsland. And on my right, I see a tiny wooden sign that says Carsland Weir. And so I immediately jam on the brakes, and this is what we've been doing all summer long, and turn right on this gravel road. And then for a few minutes, we ask each other, what's a weir again, and what are we going to be seeing here? And then we saw this. I'm driving through this sear, barren prairie, and all of a sudden we come over the gravel hill, and we see this, this avian oasis in the middle of the prairie, so green against the prairie's uh, grayness and brownness, and so quiet in there. We were the only, uh, one other person was there when we first arrived, and you could hear every bird, and, and the place was filled with birds, pelicans, heron, cormorants, and many, many more. And it was the perfect place for our family and Fran and I in that moment as we've fallen in love with Alberta birds on these Alberta side road tours all summer long. Roads we never took 
before the pandemic because we always, always had to get there in as expeditious and efficient a way as possible. We always had to get somewhere. He makes us lie down in green pastures, the psalmist writes. He leads us beside quiet waters. Both the Hebrew verbs for to make and to lead are in the imperfect sense in the psalm, in its original language, uh, which indicates uh, the action of, um, that the action is continuous and ongoing action. And so I read this on a theologian's blog. So a more literal translation of the first part of this verse would be, he continually causes me to lie down in green pastures with the implication being that at times I do not have the sense to know when it is best to lie down and rest in order to be renewed and refreshed. So how beautiful is that? That is what an always shepherding shepherd, uh, the one who shepherds your life, does. He continually leads you into places of rest uh, in big ways, through something like a pandemic or a breakdown or a physical ailment or a big shock wave hitting your life, um, or via uh, that moment where you finally decide, okay, I'm awake now, I'm going to take care of myself and do my life better. Or maybe just through a simple, just through a simple of beauty and experience of something magnificent and awesome, God wakes you up to your need for rest. Uh, or via whatever it takes to get you to stop and look around and find yourself and breathe and see who's shepherding you again means God wakes you up to his caring, tending rod and staff presence. And so that oasis, we were giggling like kids when we arrived there and just uh, laugh. we could not believe this place even existed. And then on the way out, when we started to get cell reception again, I realized uh, I got a message, and I f listened to that voicemail. And uh, leaving that little oasis, we got some, uh, at that point, quite unsettling news. The psalm writer goes on. He refreshes my soul. The original Hebrew word for refreshes is connected to the Hebrew word for repentance, which means to turn back or to return. And so, to be refreshed is to return to God, is to come back home again, is to enter into the green again, is to enter into the oasis-like nature of life that God made for you to dwell in. And on the morning, I pondered that phrase last month. I was out for a walk, and I was recollecting, recollecting some of the many returns and repentances I've made in my life. And it was a pretty long list over the hour-long walk. I filled the walk easily. And then near the end of my walk, as I'm taking the final turn on the sidewalk, um, I see this beautiful blue jay and his partner on a branch just two meters away looking back at me. And sadly and rightly, uh, blue jays remind me of a story, a coming, returning story for me, 
when um, several years ago I preached a sermon on the Blue Jays' uh, playoff run and the spirituality of that, and it ended up kind of hitting the wire and trending in Canada, and it was news across the country and TV and radio, and it was pretty heady. And then uh, a year after preaching that, I get an email from Rogers Communications, the owner of the Toronto Blue Jays, saying, hey, we're writing about your famous sermon from last year, and we'd like to use parts of it for our marketing for the Blue Jays, Blue Jays playoff run this year. Can we have your permission? Can you sign this form? So yeah, that's pretty heady. And we'd like to interview you as well. Okay, so they fly to Calgary, and we do an interview about it, and we talk about it a bit more. And then the guy uh, reaches into his pocket, pulls out two all-expense-paid tickets to go to Toronto, stay in a hotel, go to the Jays' second-last game against the Cleveland Indians, sitting in the owner's box and um, uh, as a thank you for all of this. And so... So we do that, and we get there, and it's a blast, and Fran and I are flying high, and we're watching the game, and then after the first inning, um, the marketing people cue us in that box to look at the Jumbotron, and then they run uh, segments of the video of the interviews about the spirituality of glory and victory through baseball, interviewing me, and then the moment happened. Um, I've got my big fat head on the jumbotron, and my big head could hardly fit in that owner's box at that time. And what do I do? I, I reach into my pocket and pull out my phone to make sure I get a selfie of myself on the jumbotron, drawing attention to myself so I can post it online afterwards and let everybody know, look at me. And then... <clears throat> A couple days later, we go home, and we land, and some bad news hits, and well, not great news, and I crumble, and I crumble. I'm out of ministry for five weeks, and then I try to come back, and I'm stumbling, and then a few months later, I've left my job as a pastor of that first church. And I know, just a picture, right? But it wasn't. It was, it was much, much more than that. And yet, over a period of three long years, even after that turning away from God and turning to myself, God chose to refresh me, my soul. And it took a few years, but he refreshed me and made me new again. And said, you're not out of, you're not out of this calling yet, Joan. The psalm continues, he guides me along the right paths. The morning I read that phrase, I learned that the Hebrew, lots of Hebrew work here, right? Not mine, <laughs> reading other people, but the Hebrew word for paths can also be translated entrenchments, which I absolutely love that visual image given my propensity to wander. Um, pictured this deeply entrenched path, you know, half a meter, two feet deep or something, the kind that it would be very difficult to um, uh, unintentionally uh, wander from or step out of. And I thought that is the kind of path that I need to be on in order to stay on your path, God. Yesterday I was listening to a podcast of Brene Brown, and she was interviewing 
an author named Clint Smith, and Dr. Smith's big point, he wrote a big book, a book about slavery and the impacts of gener- the generational impacts of slavery and how we see them today. And Dr. Smith's big point was that life events in history shape us more than we know. We think we live with autonomy and agency, and we do, of course, have that, but there is a larger system within which Um, Our lives are being shaped and and controlled and led that we really have no control over. And so he was talking about that in the context of slavery. And that, of course, reminded me of something I wrote about in The Day Metallica Came to Church about this idea of habitus, uh, which came from a French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu, um, which made the same point that our surroundings and history and contemporary history and lives and all those influences, they shape us... They guide our paths, for good or for ill, more than we know. And then I thought, well, while our habitus can negatively shape our lives in the context of what Dr. Smith was talking about, surely it can positively shape our lives as well, maybe for thousands of generations. If, If God is the God of all habitus and influencing forces in all things then maybe our life paths are more trench-like than we know. And that is, for me, a, a very hopeful thought. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. All of life, no matter how old you are, is a walking toward death. And on the morning I was meditating on that last phrase, I uh, serendipitously, providentially met a man uh, on the sidewalk uh, in front of his house who was newly diagnosed with bladder cancer. Just a few weeks earlier, he uh, was dropped, got the news and was dropped into this dark and darkening valley. And he had no idea it was coming. You never do. And now he was there um, with not a lot of light at that moment in terms of where this would all lead. His brother had just died of cancer, a brother who was younger than him. Um, so what? what is this all about? And he was trying to process that. And, and knowing that he was a man of faith, uh, strong faith, I, I told him about the verse I was meditating on um, that morning. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, no evil, for you are with me, Lord. And of course, he knew those words, and of course, he believed them, but but still. We have no idea when the news will come and what the news will be, Um, but we can know that God will be with us when it comes in the darkest of valleys, if that's where that news leads. Because for God, even, even the darkness is light to him, and unknowns are fully known to God, and uncertain futures are certain in his hand. And even death is nothing to God. It's swallowed up in victory before and by God.
So you don't need to be afraid. Come what may, whatever dark valley you're in, whatever diagnosis you might be facing right now, whatever shadow, psychological or otherwise, that is looming over your life. Because God, your shepherd, God, is with you there. And the future he has in mind for you even in the face of the mystery of the difficulty, is, is, is simply amazing. You prepare a table before me, the psalmist writes, in the presence of my enemies. God prepares this table for you, for you, out of his divine passion and incredible power and creativity, out of his never-ending love, God sets a table for you. And the table, if it's a God-set table, is not some meager offering enough to just barely get by with a limited or partial menu, just the lunchtime menu. No. The table God is setting is filled overflowingly with a feast because God is the chef. So could it be for our new little church that we're going to be a feast? We're sitting down to a feast with God. And could it be through your little life that you are about to sit down and feast with God? Feast with God. God prepares a table, not a single seat table, one can imagine, but a table with multiple chairs. When God prepares a table for you, you're never sitting alone. God is joining you for this feast. Um, Hold that mental image. There's a place for God where God will sit at the table that he's preparing before you, with you. And then in that moment, he will be your God, and you will be his people, and he will be our God, all of us gathered there, and he will be, (laughs) he will be our God, all of us gathered there, and we will be his people. And he'll be so close, it'll be as though he could reach over and actually wipe that tear off of your cheek. So near that you'd be able to hear him whisper, don't worry, I've got you. And try this, you'll love it. (laughs) God prepares a table before us, this kind of table, with God, feasting with God. And he prepares it before us, he prepares it for us, before us, and he prepares it before our enemies, whatever those enemies are. But those enemies, that cancer, that that person who hurt you so bad, that memory, that psychological struggle, whatever it is, will see what God is doing for you in preparing that feast, that table for you. And you'll be vindicated and honored and lifted up again to your rightful place, seen for who you are again as God's chosen guest Someone for whom God would do all of this. Of course God would for a person like you. 
And look at that table setting. Look at who he's invited. Look at how happy and content and joyful and peaceful everyone is. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Overflows. Overflowing love leading to overflowing life. In the middle of the night, after I was meditating on that phrase, um, I was just praying and peaceful and relaxed and uh, feeling a lot of gratitude. And I said out loud, I said, Lord, going over my whole life, I said, Lord, thank you for all that you've shown me all these years. Read this amazing two-book worldview and how you move and speak and reveal yourself through creation via all the epiphanies and the aha moments and the amazing stories that have played out. In that moment, I was just filled with a profound sense and overwhelmed with God's overflowing goodness. And then right on the tail of it, I prayed, Lord, please show me more which, of course, I believe, have to believe, if this is the God of the Bible that we're talking about. This is what God wants for you and plans for each of us to know him more. For, for me and for you. Surely, your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, our eternal life with God, and I will dwell, I, I'll live there, I'll make my life there, I'll enter into and be with you there. I will dwell in the house of the Lord, his cosmic everywhere, all things, present to all things house. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And on the day I meditated on that closing verse, it was the day before I was going to turn 60. And uh, it's the thing, right, to process that. It may be more my thing than other people's things. Just another birthday, but I couldn't do that math. And I was struggling with the whole thing. And is this the beginning of the end? And you're on the downward curve, and you got less days after you than you've got in the past, and less days ahead than you've got in the past. And so to kind of break that, and in that moment of gratitude and thinking about all that God has shown me, um, I decided that I would take tomorrow, which was my birthday, um, and treat it as though it were the first day of beginning a brand new class or entering into a new degree program, like how I felt when I went off to seminary or I took a new course, um, the excitement of learning more and growing and, and feeding yourself and enter, entering into the restfulness of self, um, uh, you know, taking care of yourself in terms of stewarding, uh, gaining knowledge and growing in terms of who you are. And so I decided, and, and actually the next day did it, stepped into this next seventh decade of my life, and I'm stepping into it now as though it is a brand new course, a brand new class, a brand new degree, a brand new chapter of my life where I can engage and know you more, Lord. And that was a good exercise. It continues to be for me, and I think it's how God wants you to live every day and every chapter of your life as well. Eager to know him more and more, like starting something new and how excited you were in that moment. 
excited about the new and ever new plans God has. Freely, freely following. <laughs> it's, it sounds like an oxymoron, but freely following his good shepherding, all-wise, ever-loving lead. And, and then entering into his oasis greenness and feasting at the table he set for you. And then dwelling in his house in that moment, um, but then dwelling in his house, in the house of the Lord, forever and ever more. Please join me in a prayer. Such a beautiful psalm that must have been written by a person who was near unto you. And somehow through the re-engagement of these words, uh, we end up near to you. Surely your spirit had something to do with penning the words and picking up the metaphors and pulling it all together in someone's imagination, a human being's imagination, so that us other human beings could, with our imaginations, enter into the text and um, beyond the sacred text, experience the uh, author and giver of all good things. So be our author, be the giver of all good things, be our shepherd, Lord, in these days and weeks and months that lie ahead, in our lives, in our work, in our church, in all things. This we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 